Hello again. Thanks for joining me for episode 26 of my Storytime with Boone podcast. If you're new to Storytime, it's basically me telling stories uh, from my 30 years or so in the music industry and tales from my life in general. That's what it's all about. Uh, But every five or six episodes, I like to take the opportunity to uh, record a podcast face-to-face with one of my music industry friends uh, and get them to tell some of the stories about their lives. So on previous episodes, you will have heard people like uh, Terry Christian, uh, Bez, Horace Panther of the specials and uh, Rick Witter of Shed 7 uh, having chats like the one that you're about to hear. On this episode, a man who I count as one of my best friends, uh, you will have heard me talking to him on episode two of Storytime back in uh, January. Uh, he was my best man when I got married to Charlie and he's uh, also probably one of the greatest bass players of all time. He was in Joy Division, he was in New Order, and now he's touring the world with his new band. He is Mr Peter Hook. You're going to hear the full one-hour conversation that I had with Pete a couple of days ago. I didn't get a chance to talk to him about a lot of things I wanted to uh, chat about, but maybe that'll be a future episode of Storytime. The unsigned upcoming band that you're going to hear right at the end of this episode are a band from Manchester called Sauce, with a great track called Gas Pipes Blown. You're going to love that. Thanks again for downloading and subscribing, and uh, thanks to those of you that have been leaving feedback on the iTunes comments page. The conversation that you're about to hear was recorded at Albert's Chop House in Albert Square, Manchester. On Monday, the 10th of October 2016, the occasion was to celebrate the launch of Wookie's third book, a book called Substance, and it's a book which covers his time in New Order. Uh, Pete's previous books, The Hacienda, How Not to Run a Nightclub, and uh, Unknown Pleasures, The Story of Joy Division, are both still available. If you get a chance to get them, both worth checking out. Thanks to all the management and staff at Alberts and uh, thanks to Peter Rook's management for sorting things out and to uh, Alison Bell for organising a right good do on the night. And as always, big thanks to Distorted Productions for helping me to get story time out to you. There is a Spotify playlist which accompanies this and every episode of Storytime with Boone if you want to hear uh, full versions of the songs that you're going to hear snippets of between the stories. Uh, Spotify, get on there and check out the playlist. The conversation that you're about to hear was recorded in front of about 100 people or so. And it's worth me mentioning before you hear it that also in attendance on the night, Pete's wife, Becky, she was there, and his children, Jessica and Heather, who apparently were hearing some of this stuff for the first time. Uh, my wife, Charlie, was there with our boys, well, Oscar, Hector and Cassius, and uh, some of Pete's friends, uh, Twinny, Fletch, Carl and Peter, uh, amongst others. You will hear occasional references to them or um, heckling from them at various points throughout the chat. Okay, let's do it. Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Rockstar coming through. Rockstar coming through. He's talking about himself. And Peter Hook is coming through as well. Okay, I think we'll uh, let's lose the iPod, should we? The music. Phones on silent. Somebody did say, uh, do we need to shut the bar? But we said, no, there'll be a fucking riot, won't they? So we'll leave the bar open. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Albert's Chop House in um, Albert Square in Manchester. Uh, I'm saying that for the benefit of people that are going to be listening to this on a podcast that's going to come out in a few days' time, so... We are in Manchester, the best city in the world. We're going to have a little chat, me and the, the main man here, and then if you want to buy a book and sign the book and everything, we're going to do that in the adjacent room over here. What can I say? Uh, this chap here by my side. So if we go back a long way, there's a lot of stories I could tell you. 
Actually, some of them I can't tell you about. <laughs> but he's the chap that I've become quite close to over the years. I've seen him laugh, I've seen him cry, I've seen him unconscious. <laughs> I've seen him naked. <laughs> um, and he is one of the greatest people in my life and uh, in the world as far as I'm concerned and uh, he knows that. I said to somebody today, he's the kind of bloke that if you know him as a mate, you always feel a bit safe when he's there, you know what I mean, inside you. You do, he's a solid geezer. And Stop it, is. it, you're going to have me crying. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a big... Lord of love for Peter Hook. How are we going to follow that build-up, <laughs> eh? Peter Hook, third book. You're an author now, aren't you? You're officially an author. Uh, my mother would be very proud, yes. <laughs> an she always was on at me to get a proper job <laughs> because my brother was uh, a copper. A copper? Yeah, so yeah. she always felt that I'd let the family down, you see. Yeah. So three books in, you are, you're an author like Jordan. <laughs> but you're Just like own. Jordan, I keep getting them pumped <laughs> up and reduced, yeah. So I, I got the book a couple of days ago, I've done my best to get through it, I've, I've read some amazing stuff, there's some great pictures in there. Of you mainly, yeah. <laughs> there's a couple in there. <laughs> first thing I noticed, so it's quite obvious from the first few words, the first couple of sentences, that it's a no-holds-barred book, in it? I think by the third sentence, you're using the phrase, Barney being a twat. So, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> well, it's the third sentence, mate. You think, you're right, he's not, he's not fucking about here, this fellow. He's got a lot of... And it's a big book. Look at the fucking size of it. Look at that. I mean, you could knock a burglar out with that, couldn't you? Get out of my house. You've got a lot to get out, haven't you? Well, it was... 31 years, and I must admit my uh, biggest inspiration for it being so detailed and so comprehensive was Barney's. Because <laughs> it was so... <laughs> I was like that, what? 100 pages on New Order and 69 of them calling me a twat. That's why I had to get it in uh, the third sentence. Right. You know, it's, um, yeah, the books are great, aren't they? I know it's Steve's doing his now, so that's going to be wild. Be Gillian. <laughs> Gillian after that, eh? Do you find it liberating writing the book? Or there's probably a few words. Emotional, draining. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like it's like making an LP really, because you start off with nothing, you know, blank page, and you really literally have to fill it all in. And then when you get to the top of the mountain and you're looking back, you're thinking, how the hell did I do that? And it's the same thing with with the book. The F Hacienda one took three years. Joy Division one, two years, 20, shut it. Uh, and I thought the New Order one, six months, three years mm. it took, which is not surprising because it's such a huge length of time. And yeah. the thing is, is that because you were uh, emulating the style of the first two, then you knew that you had to get everything in it and everything right, although Fat Alex tells me I've got loads of things wrong. Oh, yeah, he would already. Be, He's sending he? me a, a corrected Stasco, is he? version. Behind oh, you, are, Alex Stasco. Oh, He's a legend. This fella bad, knows more about our careers than we know about our careers. <laughs> Alex Stasco. So I knew it was going to be a tough job, yeah. and I knew that you were going to have to um, shatter some illusions. Is that you again, Twinny? Can we turn microphone number two up a little bit, please? Microphone number two, just turn it up a notch. One, two, one, two. Please. Right. 
I knew there'd be a lot of pain to talk about as well as the great bits. Yeah. So I wasn't looking forward to it. And uh, I suppose them lot made it uh, easier for me uh, by treating me so shabbily. <laughs> In 2011, it was like a bloody opening a minefield, wasn't it? You know. Mm. So yeah, I mean, if it had been nice to me, and we were all round each other's house having dinner, it would have been quite difficult, wouldn't it? You know, because I was ostracised, it made it a damn sight easier. <laughs> there you go. There's a bit early on in the book where you're talking about it's quite a bleak image, really. It's like you've lost Ian. You're back in the rehearsal room within a few months. You're being uh, egged on by Rob Gret and Anthony Wilson to carry on making music. And you talk about, oh, there was nothing there, there was no motivation, there's no incentive. You felt like you'd lost the spark. Was there a point there where New Order might have never have happened? Well, there was, there was a few points. The, the thing was, was what scared us most was that someone said we might have to go back to work. Uh, and that was pretty terrifying, especially after we'd only been professional for six months as Joy Division. And really, we just had a sniff of the barmaid's apron. And you know what I mean? And then to, for it to, to lose a great friend, a great front man, and to be on your own and then have to, you know, face it all. It was, it was really weird. I mean, we did get a lot of strength, you know, from being together, mm. like Twinney and Terry. Corky, all the people, we all spent a lot of time together. You know, we'd seek each other out after Ian's uh, death. And yeah, you know, the lads sort of, we never talked about it. <laughs> Typical men just sat there, you know, talking about football and shit like that. It's men in bands are like that sometimes, aren't they? Well, I think Northern men are pretty much like that anyway, you know, so, but there was a lot of strength that you got from being together. And then we decided to carry on the afternoon of the inquest. Uh, which was just, uh, should we go in the practice place on Monday? Yeah, see you there then. <laughs> and uh, I went home uh, on Sunday night. Strangely enough, I wrote the uh, bass riff for Dreams Never End. So when we went in on Monday, we had something to you know work on. And it sort of grew from there. I mean, Tony and Rob, I don't think they mustn't have wanted to go back to work even more than we <laughs> didn't. Because, yeah, it was a constant come on, come on, come on, come on. And um, when I was doing an interview yesterday, someone was looking at the dates and, you know, the beach club gig that we did as the no-names because the names hadn't turned up, which Rob Gretton thought was hilarious, that we would go because we didn't have a name. Um, that was close to May. It was end of July. So we'd got six songs ready. And then someone presented us with the problem of who was going to sing. So we all decided we were going to sing. And then we went and did the gig, and then we were off then. You know, Rob was then working on... Um, I mean, his, his, his ambition did know no bounds, because he was then working on taking us to America, because he said, uh, right, we've told Ruth we're going to go, so we're going to go, and that's that. I mean, it must have cost a fortune to get there. And he decided that because we were a bit shaky, we should use all our own gear. So we shipped all of our gear from Broughton, Pinkies in Broughton, to America, <laughs> so we would have a better, easier time. Uh, and it worked until the end of the first night when we got it all nicked. And uh, here I'd like to bring Twinny in to explain why it all got stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the three roadies, which were Twinny, 
uh, Dave Pills and Terry uh, fell out on the way home from Trenton in New Jersey. And when they got to Manhattan, they weren't talking to each other. So they stormed off and left the van and they were supposed to disable it. And somebody came along and just started the van up and drove it off with all the gear. Uh, so within the space of a couple of months, we'd managed to lose our lead singer our confidence and then all our bloody equipment <laughs> and it was hilarious because I remember being in the room when um, Rob Gretton said right I'll phone the co-op and tell them you know we need to claim on the insurance because we're insured with the co-op um, I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why so uh, he phoned the co-op up and the the guy must have got the number and all that lot. and then the first question he asked him was the van alarmed and Rob went no mate it wasn't <laughs> Uh, hello? <laughs> hello? Hello? So that was the end of that. We were right at rock bottom. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, wasn't was an auspicious start, you'd have to say. But, what? I mean, we had a few adventures. We had a wild time in New York, didn't we, Carl? Yeah. <laughs> we did. Do you um, want to talk about how you stole that tramp shoes? <laughs> well, he swapped them for his own. <laughs> did you? <laughs> 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 now, don't spoil the ending of the book, mate. It's in the book. It's in the book. The, I'm uh, a transvestite, yeah. No, no the, 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 the irony was the tramp had better shoes than we did. That's it, yeah. that, that was the problem, because we had no bloody money, and he'd yeah. spotted them out of the van as we were going past, or the, the car, and said, he fucking brand new pair of kickers there. It was like that. So he swapped. You do realise, well, we should be using the phrase homeless person, shouldn't we? Oh, so? yeah, sorry. It's not the, not the 1970s anymore, is it? No. Um, talking of equipment, one thing about... First of all, you found your voice in Bernard, who did a sterling job. But then the equipment thing was quite important, because that part of the 80s, early 80s, was when this electronic music revolution started to happen. And suddenly all these uh, synthesizers and drum machines were arriving in the world. And you lot embraced it, didn't you, before any other punk band or post-punk band? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the funny thing there was, was that we were using Joy Division's working-class guitar band's money to pay for all this synth equipment to become a middle-class pop band. Because that seemed to be most of the, you know, all the bands with that equipment seemed to be quite middle-class, which was weird. We didn't really fit in in that, mm. in, oddly enough. But the first thing that Barney did was, of course, he built the synthesizer himself. Yeah. Then he went on and had um, a clef drum machine, which was taken from an organ. You know, like those organs your uncle used bon to tempe. play? Bon Tempe. organs. It was taken out of there. It was um, adjusted to give separate outputs so that he could EQ the different drums. Mm. You couldn't really program it. You were still stuck with bossa nova, waltz, yeah. rhythm. Samba. Yeah. And then, rock so, it, but it, so we, we were on the road. Um, and the next one was the Doctor Rhythm. DR55, which we used on Truth, and Everything's Gone Green. And then as you went into the 80s, it started with the Lindrum, which we couldn't afford, because it was 3,200. But the DMX, which was 2,000, we could afford. Yeah. It was a DMX Mark One, And uh, 2,000 quid then is about 20,000 now. Right, a lot of money. Want to work that out, a lot of money. Uh, and considering we didn't have two apennies to rub together, I don't know where the bleeding hell that money came from. It's funny because for a little bit there in the middle of the 80s, you were like, you were sort of like that generation's Pink Floyd because you could afford all this gear. Well, the gear was coming from somewhere, wasn't it? You're the most cutting edge recording gear in the world, musical yeah, gear. But you were buying it, weren't you? The odd thing was, was that we were, we were on 30 quid a week. 
and the Hacienda was going then and the Hacienda was losing, I think in 1984 it was losing £10,000 a month, the Hacienda. And uh, we were on 30 quid a week and yes, we had all this really ritzy, dead expensive gear and the thing was is that Rob would always find the money for the gear, which I suppose in a funny way was insurance because maybe he had the foresight to go, these boys are going to go far yeah. with this gear and he made sure you got it. Uh, and he was absolutely correct in that. We went into the Profit 5. They all seemed to be around the same price. The Profit 5 was 2,000 each. Mm. The Emulator 1 was 2,100. It was like they picked a figure out, how much can we charge? <laughs> 2000, that's just <laughs> that must be the one. So everything was around about that. Price. Could have said a lot of you don't know what we're talking about, but I'm sat here with a semi on me, tell you. <laughs> Talk about keyboards, electronic keyboards, and the history of every few pages there is um, like a page devoted to a piece of equipment that was important to New Order's um, sound and development. And it's fair to say they did actually, with these machines and this voice and this sound and this fucking bass, they did go on to change the face of popular music, didn't you? Well, every band today that doesn't sound like Joy Division sounds like New Order. So I'm lucky that I was in both, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a strange day In such a lonely way I saw some children dance I watched my life Yeah. <laughs> I said about Pink Floyd as well before, the other thing you had in common with Pink yeah, Floyd... they sound like New Order as well. <laughs> they wish. But um, that, that bit of the 80s where you were having hit records and you were still pretty... Well, most of the band were faceless. You weren't. Everybody was fucking hooky walking down Deansgate, you know what I mean? But, but it's like to have a frontman and like Bernard who, you know, he was singing on these hit records, but he, he, he could walk through Manchester pretty much uh, unnoticed. It's like an invisible sort of band, wasn't it, for a while? Well, we, we got offered, should we do interviews? Do you want to do interviews? Do you want to do interviews? And we just said no. And he went fine. And it was like, that was it. You were left alone. You know, you were left with your grief, funnily enough. So you didn't have to talk about Ian, which I think was probably the main thing that we were worried about, was having to go over, you know, show your feelings or something. You know, we just didn't want to do it. And if somebody asked you what you were doing, you know, you didn't have a fucking clue. I don't know what I'm doing. Fucking scared to death, me, mate. And so the thing is, is that Rob actually played a blinder there. But the outcome of it was that you got a very dark, mysterious, serious image. Which, of course, we dispelled at every possible occasion. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were a bunch of tosses from Salford. Yeah. Many years later, the, the well-documented split, which at the time when it happened, it didn't just happen because of something you said to me on the radio, did it, in May of, May of 2007? It was all to do with what you said on a bloody radio, you bastard. He was doing an interview with me on uh, XFM Live one night, and it was May 2007, and he very casually mentioned, you know, since New Order split, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hang on a minute. Did say that? I said, did. I said, we're not playing together. Right, OK. And I said, have you split up? And then you said, well, we're not working together, so yeah, I suppose we've split up. <laughs> Anyway, that was it, right? So just, you know, a couple of lads having a bit of a chat on radio. Next day, that news was literally 
around the world, wasn't it? All the music. You should have seen the judge in the High Court when your name got mentioned. He went like that. And he said, Boon Army. He's like that with the gavel. Send him down. <laughs> did I get mentioned in court? Yeah, you did. Oh, yeah. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. Not the first time I've heard. It is the first time. I think it's the first time. Is it a big court as well? It's a very big court, yeah. a very frightening court, mate. Yeah, yeah. Since the split, uh, I think it's fair to say you've you you seem like a man who's quite been quite liberated by the freedom that you've got since you stepped out of it. Yeah, this is uh, the interesting bit with this lot being so close. <laughs> you, the uh, new order changed when we signed to the big record label and um, we seemed to join in with the pantomime that a lot of bands do, which was hard to take on when you'd spent most of your time trying to fuck everything up and being really awkward and obtuse and you'd made a career out of it, basically. Then you mean to get creative, to, you're on about creative yeah, sense, aren't Yeah, you? yeah, and then to get into London records and then all of a sudden you're doing everything that a normal band does, you know. And one of the big saddest things was, was when we started playing the same set every night. Now, uh, that was just awful to me because you had so many songs that were fantastic and I always thought they were all fantastic. Very proud of all of them then. Um, Jetstream turns out to be the exception. Yeah. So you, it changed. And it, it, we, you just couldn't persuade them to play any of the old stuff. They just wouldn't do it. And then it just became really, really boring. And as my beautiful wife always says, you know, I, I never came home with a smile on my face. It was, it was a grind, and it was, it started to go to get a bit dull, you know. And I thought it got dull for you lot, you know. I mean, maybe that's where I've went wrong. I was really sensitive about about you lot, and shouldn't be, should I? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely lot looking at some of you. Um, <laughs> so you, your disenchantment grows and grows. Now, when we split up on Republic, which when you read the book was the most difficult session that I've ever done anyway. I mean, it's, well, the reasons are there. Uh, whether it was, you know, it's just the truth. That's what happened. And it was awful, and it was an awful record to make. We weren't getting on, it was just horrible. Stephen Haig had a job to do, and he did that job very well, actually, and um, produced a very polished record, which was our biggest selling record in America, which probably tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we split up. And it was awful, it was very antagonistic. Barney had fallen out with Stephen Gillian, he'd fallen out with me years before. Uh, you know, it was really, really bad situation to be in. Now, we did Republic to save the Hacienda because we were told it was the only thing that would save the Hacienda, which again was a lie, it didn't save the Hacienda. And we were told that you had to do it to save Factory. That didn't work either, you know. So it was done under duress. Uh, there's a lot of guilt tripping mm. on us because we were seen as like the saviors of it all. You know, Tony had made a, a lot of mistakes. I must admit, Revenge didn't help. In the same way, ele Electronic didn't help. Or Happy know. Mondays. Well, the Happy Mondays made the biggest mistake. But <laughs> the weird thing about the Mondays was was that, you know, they sent us to Ibiza, and 
I had a great time in at the airport when Tony got hold of me when he came to visit and said, this is the most expensive holiday you've ever had. <laughs> uh, he was absolutely right. And I remember that when Heather uh, came over to visit, she actually walked past me at the airport because I was so brown. <laughs> she didn't recognise me. And I'd been out in the sun that much, so basically we'd done naff all on the record. And, yeah, it was an expensive mistake. So, we, it cost a fortune and we made a right fuck up. Uh, and then he sent the Happy Mondays to the Bahamas, or Bermuda, or wherever it was, and made the same mistake twice. And I could, I was like, that is so factory. Yeah. To do it once, and then to do it again. You know, and that, all these culmination of all these events, there was the massive, um, property collapse in 1990, I think it was. He was building his office. You know, there was loads of events that just, you couldn't stop it, and yet they dragged us out to make a record, you know, as if we were going to halt this worldwide financial crash. But, you know, and it, and it didn't work. And it was awful, and we split up. What happened was then was, was that when we got back together again, because basically Rob Gretton was sick of fielding questions and he didn't know what was happening, uh, he's, he got us in, and time is a great healer, it has to be said. And when we got back together again, we were, we were okay. Uh, and I said, well, you know, it's okay getting back together again as long as we don't make the same mistakes. And everybody nodded and went, don't worry. <laughs> that was my first mistake, because it didn't take long for the same mistakes to occur again. I mean, it's like, it's like going home at Christmas, yeah? You know, you expect it to be different. Within about an hour or two, it's just exactly the bloody same, isn't it? Same bickering, same people arguing, you know, the same thing. And but every year you you go with hope. So yeah, we just made the same mistakes again. To cut the long story short, uh, and it dissolved. Yeah. And you got back on the uh, party treadmill as well, didn't you? <laughs> Which leads us into the next chapter. Well, I'd never got off the party treadmill. Um, actually, it's uh, Twinnie's fault, of course. <laughs> you can't blame everything on He's right in my eye line. Actually, a lot of it's Bowser's fault as well, funnily <laughs> enough. In fact, if I had a gun now, I could get rid of all my problems. Looks like usual suspects, <laughs> doesn't it? They're all lined up at the back, in front of a picture of me, funnily enough. But look at that, it's Sean Ryder. <laughs> That is a, that is a so, wall yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't get into. Um, do you mind leaving the room, darling? <laughs> uh, I didn't get into drugs until quite late. Uh, but Barney said, You've spent every second making up for it from then on. Yeah. And I seemed to go like kamikaze. Uh, and the alcohol and the drugs basically caught up. I mean, it took a while, you mm. know. I mean, I lasted till I was. 49. Yeah. So I had a good innings. I saw some highlights that we probably can talk about during that period. Do you remember when we went uh, DJing in Newcastle once? Mm -hmm. And we're in the dressing room and uh, there was some kid from this university radio station or something. <clears throat> Comes in, he says, can I interview Oki for my uh, programme? I said, yeah, come on, check to Oki. Oki said, yeah. But he said, whatever you do, don't ask me about this, this or this. I can't remember who it was. But the kid asked him about all three. <laughs> so Oki throws him down on this couch, sits on his chest and starts slapping him across the face like, don't talk to me like that, you little fucker. 
What, do you remember that? Yes, I do, and that's the same night your wife phoned up my wife <laughs> in the morning when we were going out for a drink afterwards, and then Becky went berserk at me. What's the going Who's that woman phoning up at this time? And it was uh, Charlie, darling. Yeah, she didn't believe me. I was going, no, it's Charlie, it's Clint's new Charlie missus. Yeah. Like that. yeah, he got me in a lot of trouble that night, you yeah. bastard. I know, I know. I didn't have my phone, my phone had gone, hadn't it? Hey, hang on, this is yeah. our night, ladies. Yeah. If you, you can two even... want to hold your own night. Yeah, yeah, write, yeah, yeah. write your own fucking books. I don't know what to say. You don't care anyway. I'm a man in a rage with that girl I betrayed. Here comes love. Charlie's got another lucky story she mentioned today that once when I was working at a radio station in Oldham called The Revolution and uh, I was on her one day and she was escorting you up. You were driving in your little sports car, that one with the suicide doors. Remember that? Mazda. Mazda. And you were following Charlie. So she said every time she got, you, you were following her, every time she stopped at a red light, you were nudging into the car like that. <laughs> 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 I never it was did sober, that. it was sober, it wasn't drinking well. Anyway, but it was a party animal. And then yes. the next bit we're going to talk about, and it is very well documented in the book and in, in, you know, something we've talked about a lot over the years. 2004, towards the end of 2004. And I knew you pretty well at the time. I've always considered you to be a close friend, but even I was shocked when you went into the Priory in, uh, was it November 2004? Because the day before, you were the, the godfather or the, the life roared for little Oscar who's in there somewhere. So one minute, you're this fine, upstanding, sober family man. And the next day, I was a fine, upstanding, sober family man. <laughs> 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 Fucking blubbing, blubbing down the phone to me saying, I'm going into the priory that. And we didn't see that. Cause we, knew, we knew you were a party man, but we didn't know it had got that bad that uh, that was about to happen. What are your memories of that period, November, December, leading uh, up to sketchy. Christmas? Um, have we got any alcoholics in the room? Have we got any alcoholics in the room? Just me. Are you an alcoholic? Are you in recovery, though? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that we can tell that by looking at you, actually. He's loving it. Right, so we've got no recovering alcoholics. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> He's, he's gone embarrassed. I heard that first time. He's not an alcoholic. So I'm the only recovering alcoholic. Fantastic. Don't 12 feel, years Don't old. feel ganged on. Uh, 11. 11 years. Oh, Pete, yeah, you are, aren't you? Oh, thank you. Pete's got more years than me, haven't you, mate? Yeah, good. Well, there you are, two of us to fucking watch it. <laughs> the, uh, it yeah, I, I'd like to say it came out of, uh, like, a bolt out of the blue, but it didn't. It was a very gradual process. And um, my, I started drinking. Cocktail hour in New Order was six o'clock. Uh, and it kept creeping forward and forward and forward till it was about 11, <laughs> basically. And in the end, I ended up drinking 24 hours a day which I think is pretty standard, isn't it, mate? Yeah, we all, you know, bloody rooms full of us. Uh, and it just got a hold on you, and there was nothing you could do about it. 
I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Well, you were uh, coming home at weekends and... Well, yeah, but I'd still be drinking, but, you know, I just wouldn't let on. Yeah, not you know, I'd get up in the morning, have a glass of wine, and I'd nip and just before I went to school. I'd nip in the pub uh, for, a, you know, before I picked... Jessica up, that's smashed all her illusions. Uh, but I have Sorry to say, when I went in the pub before picking the kids up, I wasn't alone. There was quite a few dads in there, funnily enough, and it's the only time I bloody saw them. So, but yeah, I mean, al alcoholism is a, a very serious disease, even though it's not actually recognised as a disease in mm. England. Um, it's still, uh, if you've got medical insurance, you can't claim for alcoholism. It's only, you can only claim for depression. So you get a few people that actually go in the priory and say it's depression to get it paid for. Right. It's an expensive treatment and it's a very um, unsuccessful treatment. You get a lot of people in there in my uh, group, as we called them. So I went from one group to another. Yeah, they, were a <laughs> they were a bunch of bastards and all. <laughs> uh, there was 14 people and by the end of it, I think eight of them had relapsed after three weeks gone. And then I think, to my knowledge now, and I've not heard from him for a couple of years, there was only two of us. So the success rate is pretty shit. But I mean, what was scary, and we were talking about me being 49 when I went in to the Priory, is, is that there was kids in there, uh, 21 mm. and 23, and I was like, that, oh shit, 21, I mean, how, how are you gonna? I didn't say that, because I yeah. went really depressed him, wasn't it? <laughs> how are you gonna cope when you get like, ah! <laughs> um, you know, I thought 48, I'd had a pretty good 49, I'd had a pretty good innings, but I thought, you poor bastard, 21, 23. And of course, when I went in there, it was basically like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And what struck me in that I read a lot of rock biographies, a lot, and no one ever talks about rehab. We've never talked about it in detail. No one's done it in the same way that... Uh, no one talked about Groucho's, which was the club in London where we all used to go bananas, where Robbie Williams fell from grace and Blur used to terrorise, all the comedians used to terrorise. No one ever talked about it, so I thought, you know what, I'll do that. <laughs> I can do that. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was wild. I mean, I got in so much trouble. It was like being back at school. Mm. You know, I'd get in the bus. We were going to um, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, this really shitty church hall in some godforsaken hole. And I'd be like, string fellows, driver! Hey! And they'd all be going, oh! They'd all be like that. And, you know, I was getting told off all the time for being a dry drunk, which mm. is a syndrome that we, you know, that people who give up drinking go through. So it was, it was needed, and I went through it, and it was very painful, and then you have to start again when you come out, and... Uh, I don't want to go into the uh, whys and wherefores of that, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's weird because I sat in that room the first day I was in there and I looked out the window and I was thinking, shit, you know, my life's over. Oh, fuck, you know, what am I going to do without a drink or a drug or whatever? Mm. And, you know, in reality, my life was just beginning. Absolutely. I actually yeah. got my life back. Yeah. And I was very lucky to keep hold of the things that were most important in the world to me, you know, my family and my job. Mm -hmm. uh, I kept my job and uh, I thought, well, you know, when I get back, this is serious, this. I thought, they'll look after me. And um, they fucking didn't. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, they took great delight in rubbing it in your face. <laughs> and I go, oh, can I have a, a glass of water, please, Bernie? Can you pass me my glass of water? And he'd grab a bottle of champagne and give it me. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking bastard. Well, you've, so you've done 11 years now. And that, that's, I mean, it's, it's probably the main reason why you've managed to, 
turn into this. You are like one of the most industrious musicians in the in the country, aren't you? But you just you don't stop, do you? <laughs> you should see my legal bills, mate. Yeah, you, I don't think you'd be able to stop either. But no, I mean, um, we don't I, say it's like without that uh, sobriety. I I, I always have the feeling that if you don't do it, then you're going to lose it. And my mate. Dave D um, from Dozy Beaker, Mick and Titch. He was my next door neighbour. Uh, lovely man, great man. He always used to say to me, whenever I'd say, you know, I've been offered this thing and I'm not too sure. And he went, fuck it, okay, do it. He said, some other bastard will be putting food in their kids' mouths. And I was like, oh, he's got a point there, isn't it? You know, you start thinking, who is it beneath me, above me? And he's going, just fucking do it, no one gives a shit. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, and it was uh, quite a healthy attitude. I mean, he turned the Sex Pistols down, not once, but twice. And I said to him, I said, why did you do that, mate? He said, why? He said, they were fucking shit. He <laughs> <laughs> was an a and man, wasn't he? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. For Warners, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was uh, a great help uh, at that point, yeah. I suppose you'd have to say. And, yeah, I mean, you do, it's, I don't know. I always do get that feeling that someone's going to take it off you yeah. if you don't do it. And to be honest with you, I don't want to, you know, I don't want you all doing it, but... It's a pretty good job, this. It's hard work, and you know, it can destroy you, yeah. but it's certainly better than working for a living. Was it 2006, 2007, when you got into being a superstar DJ? <laughs> well, you that, bloody though? taught me, yeah. yeah. It's all your fault as well, isn't it? <laughs> well, you kept one, saying, yeah. it was always like that. He'd be around our house saying, fucking stuck for money. Bernard's loaded, I've got now. <laughs> fucking, you don't, don't want to do any gigs. And I said, well, you should be a DJ. He said, what do you mean? I said, do what I do, just go and DJ and clubs will give you loads of money. He says, all right, how much do you get? So I'll get X amount, you'll get three times that. So he said, all right, let's show us what to do. So we set all my DJ gear up in me, our dining table in Stockport one night. And he came around two CD decks in the mixer. He said, all right, what do you do? And he stood there like that, like hooky. And I said, well, you press that. And then when that stops, you press that. And then put one of these in here and then press that. And he did it and he started getting gigs within a week, fucking five grand a night or something. <laughs> New York. First gig, New York, wasn't it? Uh, I, well, the first one was Punta Alegre, which <laughs> was for um, Argentinian Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> There's me doing fucking little bars in Manchester, <laughs> thinking I'm the, the business, you know what I mean? He's in fucking but Argentina. I, but you did teach me how to do it, because I was really bad at uh, first. I did the New York one. This this is really bad. This I get slagged off on social media for this. Um, I forgot me tunes. So when I got to the airport to go, I thought, oh, fucking hell, I've got no tunes. I thought, shit. So uh, it was a Saturday. So I went in, and you know all the papers have got 10 best Christmas songs, and <laughs> Q's got top indie. I just bought six of them and went and did it with them. It's true, this is absolutely true. And um, I remember then, after he'd taught me how to do it, I decided it was too much like hard work, so I used to get somebody who came and did it on the night, and I'd go, that's number seven. <laughs> and the kid had put number seven on for me and funnily enough it was only my partner um, in Fact 251 Aaron uh, Meller uh, I went to DJ this was after all his good work um, at the Tower Club not the Tower Club, the one they had in Oldham Tokyo. no, 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 the other one the pub, the castle Yes, the castle, thank you, got a better memory you should write a book <laughs> 
I'm on with it, mate. I'm on with it. I'm DJing in the castle, and he says to me, right, here, here's the decks. Off you. I said, I can't put them on. I said, you'll have, you'll have to put them on. I don't know how to put them on. I can't do it. Clint told me, but I've forgotten. <laughs> and he went, you can't put them on. So he put the first track on, you know, he pressed the button. And I went, right, right, uh, the second track. He said, second track. He said, fuck off. He said, you can do it. I went, I can't do it, I can't do it. You know, there's loads of people, about 150 people in the pub. I said, I can't do it. And he went, well, you've got two minutes 31. <laughs> two minutes 30. Two minutes 29 to learn. And I was like, ah, oh, fucking hell. Like, ah. Phoned him, he was out. <laughs> How'd you do it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, within two minutes, 29 seconds, I was a DJ. And um, I must admit, you know, being paid to play your own music is pretty good. Being paid to play somebody else's music is fantastic. Mm. But it's not as easy as pressing the buttons, which any of you who have seen him will know. <laughs> you have, have to have the balls to do it and you've got to have the balls to stand there, and then you've got the balls, and this is the most difficult thing about DJing in the world, is when somebody comes up and asks you for a track. Have you got the cure? Because <laughs> I went through that, you know, the first bit was, fuck off, I ate the cure, fuck off. <laughs> and then they'd start arguing, ah, oh, the cure really good, you know, like that, and it's like, oh, fuck off, I hate the Smiths, and all this lot. And then, of course, he said, no, no, he taught me again. He says, what you do is you say, I'll put it on in 10 minutes. And he always go, oh yeah, top one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, any yeah. of you that do it in South, he's yeah. lying. Try, <laughs> right, Superstar DJ, you did a bit of free bass, and then eventually, Peter Hook and the light. When that started, I know there was, a bit, there was quite a bit of scepticism, I think it's fair to say that. I think in Manchester, when you did that first gig at the um, Fact 251 factory with Rueta, I think it divided, certainly people that I knew, you know, in our social circle, it divided people. Some people got it, some people didn't get it. But everybody in that room that night got it, and they all went away and started telling everybody else how brilliant it was. And it's just escalated. It just seems to get ten times bigger every yeah. every week. I mean, you just come back from Mexico last week. Yeah, uh, we did a Mexico last Saturday, and a uh, huge hall. Yeah, we had four thousand six hundred people, and uh, we played the New Order One. Substance went down fantastic. We played the Joy Division One. Jesus, they went absolutely berserk. For some reason, Mexico City is the most popular place in the world for, mm. for Joy Division. Ian's greatest wish was for people to hear Joy Division. When we were together as New Order, it actually did feel okay to ignore Joy Division. It made sense, and it actually made New Order your focus, and you made New Order really, really popular, very successful. It worked. Once New Order had split up, and you were on the outside looking in, I was sat there thinking, why do we never celebrate anything to do with Joy Division? We've done nothing. One year, 10, 15, 25, it just seemed nuts. And Joy Division were getting bigger and bigger. And as New Order got successful, Joy Division was right behind it. And it was selling, uh, at one point, Joy Division in the late 80s was selling more than New Order with no promotion, nothing, just on the strength of the music alone. I mean, that is a wonderful compliment to us as musicians. And I thought, you know what, it was coming up to 30 years, and I thought, 30 years of Ian's life, 
And I thought it needed celebrating. Now, Bernard and Stephen had already played Joy Division and New Order songs in Bad Lieutenant, which was before I played. So it just became another classic one of not do as I do, just do as I say, you know what I mean? So we, I thought, I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to get a singer, I'm going to get a band together, and I'm going to celebrate that one-off at the factory to celebrate Ian's life, for charity, as it was. And the singers that I had lined up, I had three singers lined up, and basically the keyboard terrorists terrified them and scared them off, and they, they wouldn't sing. And I thought, oh, shit. So we were stuck then, and it was Rowetta, God bless her soul, that said to me, stop fucking about, you're going to have to sing, and that's it. I went, what, me? Oh, God. You know, Ian's shoes, Ian Curtis's shoes were pretty big shoes to fill. Bernard's were a lot more snug, <laughs> actually, I have to say. So I was terrified, and we did it. And then, of course, because I can't sing and play, we needed a bass player, and I uh, brought Jack out of college in his last year, and my wife will never forgive me uh, <laughs> for that. Uh, and once he got a sniff of the barmaid's apron, he said to us, oh, I'll go back in January, didn't he? Yeah. He, never, he never went back, and he's never been back. So that's Jack, that's Peter's son, Jack. He yes. uh, now plays bass, second and bass. Yes, well, first bass, if you listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> Don't that's, know that's quite that a, it's like you're playing bass in your dad's band is something, but when your dad's the biggest bass player ever to come out of Britain. That's quite big boots, isn't it? It is, and he, he loves it, and he's very, very intense uh, about the whole thing. And because it's very new to him, of course, he wants me to play all the time, yeah. which does lead to some interesting um, arguments. And has he got a gig with Smashing Pumpkins? Yes, well? he played bass okay, with no. the Smashing Pumpkins last year. I'm doing better was... than you. He'll <laughs> be in New Order next. <laughs> Well, at least they'll have a decent fucking bass player then, won't they? Yeah, so uh, Jack with the Smashing Pumpkins was great and he's supposed to be working with them again uh, this year Amazing. towards the end of the year as well. So he's, he's doing really well. How old is he? He's exactly, funnily enough, when we started playing Unknown Pleasures, he was the same age as me, 21, which was really freaky and it led to some really freaky moments. 22 for Closer, 23 for Movement. He was exactly the same age, not, you know... Just wow, coincidence. Yeah, it was really strange. Amazing. But he is great. He's a, he's a great bassist, so he tells me, <laughs> <laughs> and he's always telling me how to do everything. It drives me fucking crazy. But I'm sure I was exactly the same with my dad uh, when I was a kid. You know, it's part of the fun of uh, being a know-all, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. You just turned sixty a few months ago. Yes, I did. Yes, I, d I know I don't look it. Looks brilliant, doesn't he? Wait for him to say it. Then you don't look. So Looks great, doesn't he? Um, I wish I does, that, does that give you a new sort of even more motivation to do stuff? Is it 
boosted your um, incentive? No, I, I mean, I don't... You know, it's, it's weird when you come from punk and punk was all about getting rid of all those old farts. And all of a sudden we are old farts and we're happy that that didn't work. Yeah. Uh, especially with that one, we didn't <laughs> imagine that, oh shit. So you, no, I mean, I don't think of myself as 60, I don't, I just don't, I don't even think about that. Uh, I'm actually fitter now, thanks to cross addiction, um, than I've ever been before. So yeah, you know, age-wise, doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I do, you get, too many funerals, mm. which is the problem in it. You know, Alan Wise's was bloody awful. What a bloody awful thing that was, to say the least. Jesus, man. And yeah, you see too many of that. I yeah. suppose that's one of the things about getting old, isn't it? You know? yeah, absolutely. Oh, it just has gone down, hasn't it? Yeah, I'll tell you what, tell us a story about the time when, when you got married. You and Becky got married. And uh, you had 75 guests for a sit down meal. It's a five star place, it's three course meal. Go on, tell us that one. Well, and only three three people eat. Only three people. Why did only three people eat? These are the, these were the here's the two best men here, because they were too excited, and uh, yeah, I, I have the visions of um, the the you know the kitchen bringing all the food out, and then taking it all back. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was a very um, hedonistic yeah. affair, but we had a great time, didn't Why we? Why weren't they hungry though? <laughs> <laughs> I feel a burning pain, keep on burning in my bloody brain. I've got cocaine running around my brain. I've got cocaine running around my brain. I want you to dig my soul, brother and soul, sister. I want you all my time because I'm a dino mind. Yeah, I've got cocaine running around my brain. We should do a little shout out for Becky as well. She's a she has been a rock to you for 20 years, and you do talk about it in the book. I think you use the phrase, she's saved my life many times. Yes, I suppose that was one of the weird things about the uh, focus on, you know, Miss Ahern. Uh, last week, even though it was only a small part of my book, everybody jumped on it for the obvious reason. But the thing is, is that they, they want to moan about that, but they don't want to celebrate, you know, a successful when two people treat each other with love and respect that last 20 years, you know, they don't want to talk about that, do they? Which is typical of the bloody tabloids. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, it was a tough... Oh, thank you. That's Alex Stash there, it, it, it was a tough decision. I suppose we should talk about it and get it out of the way, should we? Um, and it was very bad at the time, and as my friends over there will testify, I suffered uh, very badly. And the thing is, is that I suppose in a way it was a very important part of my story because at the end of it, I actually felt awful and I was ill. And I was really suffering. And the thing is, is that I suppose you want to let people know that there's, there's life after that and, you know, give people hope and maybe a bit of inspiration. And I came through it. And I'd like to think I've done, you know, a damn sight better than, you know, than I did before. Yeah. So it was very difficult and, you know, it's always a sad thing like when Patrick and um, Ricky Tomlinson, I never thought I'd be up against Ricky fucking Tomlinson. You only got one word to say to him, haven't you? My ass! <laughs> they would say you were less of a man for talking about it, which is the whole stigma of, you know, <clears throat> that kind of abuse. 
So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not been easy, but, you know, it's part of my life story. And I wasn't going to do my life story. Maybe when Ricky Tomlinson does his life story, maybe he'll be leaving that bit about prison out, you know. <laughs> and all that, because he don't want to flog his butt, will he, you know? <laughs> um, and it's, it's, yeah, it was a horrible position to be in. And, mm. you know, the thing is, is that every time you go and do an interview, when really you should be celebrating... Uh, 40 years where you've achieved a hell of a lot made a few mistakes suffered fine but you know and it becomes all about that so it is mm. difficult but what justified it for me uh, and I've told a lot of my friends here was that last week on Tuesday a young lady came up to me and she said oh I saw you in the Daily Mail and I thought oh my god well, where's, where's, where's this gonna go now <laughs> And she went on to uh, tell me about the, the, how she was suffering. And it was a horrible thing to witness because she was a, a lovely young girl. And, you know, you're like that. And you tried to give her as much advice as I could, inspire her, you know, to do, to move on, to get help, to get past it. And then, you know, when we'd parted, I thought, fucking hell, it was worth it, yeah. you know, for that. <clears throat> you know, and it's not... It's not an easy thing to do, you know. I still feel embarrassed about it in a funny way now because of that stigma of feeling of less of a man. Because you didn't chin your missus. It just doesn't make sense to me as a, as a sufferer. Right. So, yeah, you know, not them months. We're going to do a question answer thing in a minute too, but just a couple more questions, quick ones. What do you consider to be your greatest achievement, Peter Hook? <laughs> Sir there and them over there. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful people. Yeah, wife and kids. Uh, after that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> oh, sorry, and twinning. Yeah. <laughs> the... Yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. I've had a good innings and I'm still doing well, still getting away with it, in the words of the song. <laughs> After all this time, yay, all my life. And uh, my the highlight of my career, of course, was uh, playing on an Inspiral Carpets record. You did, actually. Uh, theme, theme from Devil Hopping, I think it was called. Yes, it was a beat uh, side, and it was actually it? good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. good. We had, a, we had a good time. We working. were buzzing our tits off that day about working. <laughs> we were like, our fucking phone and everybody. We were going in the studio with Okie. Yeah, Peter Okie. Yeah, that's right. I remember but when um, Pete produced an early single for the Stone Roses, Elephant Storm. Is it Elephant Storm? And I remember seeing Manny the night before he went into the studio and he was just gibbering like an excited little kid because he was going working with you. That, that was good. I mean, the, there's the Stone Roses chapter in there which sort of compares very well to New Order, uh, funnily enough, for uh, mishaps and adventures uh, along the way. And working with them was... Wild, yeah. I mean, Gareth was nuts. In the true tradition of rock and roll managers, the guy, these Svengalis that disappear with all the band's money, 
you know, they're amazing. It's like, but now you don't seem to get them now. I don't know why. It tends to be a bit more corporate and uh, managers are managed by corporations. Yeah. So they must be marshaled a lot, you know. Uh, I mean, Rob Gretton had a good go at getting rid of our money. Uh, in it, yeah, but you know, in it, he, he changed Manchester and he changed the world. And he said to me, he said, he said, okay, you can't fucking buy a heritage like this. And I said, you know what? You've had a fucking good go. <laughs> Fuck me, man. The fucking price tag on that heritage is yeah. unbelievable. So, you know, the, the Stone Roses suffered uh, at his hands, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a weird, it's a good chapter. And I enjoyed writing it because it wasn't me suffering. <laughs> <laughs> it was them. Because I bumped into uh, the, the last, the end of it was, we did Elephant Stone and uh, I did it for nothing. And um, I was at home in Minton Street in Moston and there's knock at the door and Gareth was there. And Gareth was their manager, Gareth Evans. And he said to me, OK, I've been thinking about it. He said, uh, I'm going to pay you for that fucking single. And I went, oh, great. I said, how much? And he went, thousand quid do? I was like, fucking hell, thousand quid? I was on 30 quid a week. <laughs> and we had two deck chairs in the front room, that was it. We used to sleep on the floor. And he, he peeled off, he always had his money, cash in his pockets from the club, the International One, was it, he used to run? Yeah. Uh, everything was in cash, and he just peeled it out, peeled off a thousand, give it me. And he went, oh yeah, he said, I'm gonna give you two points and all. And I went, oh, cheers, mate, cheers. Uh, and then shut the door and I turned around to me then partner and said, what a point? <laughs> uh, two points of the record. Percentage know, and, of... Yeah, yeah, of what the record earned. And because, God bless them, they turned the track backwards just for an, a mess about and we put some forwards guitar on it and they called it Full Fathom Five. Mm. I got paid twice. Nice. <laughs> and I actually made, over the years, I made a lot of money out of the Stone Roses. And then um, I, was on, I was on the peak of my producing powers. And um, <laughs> it was when the Stone Roses were going in to do their record and they, uh, they asked me to produce it. I also got asked by the go-betweens, the gun club, and uh, another one, I can't remember who the other one was, it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that, produce those albums or one of them or whatever, or do technique. Shit, it was like the same conundrum I had when Rob suggested that I manage the Hacienda, you know, mm. get rid of the manager, Paul Mason. Why don't you do it? Fucking give up music and you become manager of the Hacienda. <laughs> and I was like, ah, God, you know, I mean, it's not a bad career choice if you don't mind being chased around by kids with Uzis. <laughs> as long as you've got plenty of anaesthetic, you know. <laughs> Another kid with Uzi in the cocktail bar, I'll be there in a minute, you know. Um, you're a survivor of that as well, aren't you, Pete? <laughs> so, yeah, and a conundrum was, do I quit music, become manager of the club? In the end, I made the right decision. I stayed a musician, just got pissed at the club. Uh, I used to try and sort out the problems during the day. And then with the producer, I did the same thing. I chose technique, and I'm very, very happy. Uh, I chose technique, uh, as, as well as the huge holiday we had in um, <laughs> San Antonio. Uh, we made a great record, a really, really, and I think it's one of the best New Order records, and yeah. that's what was weird. I mean, I'm not being funny here, right? When New Order's LP came out, and everyone compared it to Technique. Now, does anybody else think it sounds like Technique? Is it just me 
that says it doesn't sound like technique, it sounds like electronic to me. Is it, is it just me? It doesn't sound, it's not like technique. Technique has such a wonderful vibe to it. And I remember we had a, a terrible time making it, of course, as you would expect, at each other's throats. When we came back, uh, I took the kids in Eaton Park and we're walking around Eaton Park and there was a kid, you know when they, they used to have the massive ghetto blasters on their shoulders, walking around with the tops off with the ghetto blaster going. And it was playing this wonderful, sorry, playing this wonderful music. And I thought, fuck me, that's fucking great, that. Oh, you fucking, who is that? I'm going to go and ask the kid. And I went, hey, hey. And our kid, I said, hey, who's that on your blaster? And he went, fucking hell, okay. He said, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> it's technique. I was like, fucking hell, it is good, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, I suppose the, the, the thing has to be said that you live and don't learn. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's have some questions oh. from the, uh, the people. Right, first one over here. Yeah, I love the Monaco album. I thought it was tremendous. And I recorded a second one, but it was never released. Is there a story there? Can I just yeah, repeat the sadly. question? For those listening on the uh, podcast, uh, was there ever a second Monaco album? Did it ever come out? Yeah, we. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's Alex. It. Alex Dashko is also. He's a big bootlegger. He was the first bootlegger I ever knew in my life. I didn't even know what a bootlegger was when I first met Alex in the eighties. He's got recordings of every gig that any Manchester band has ever done ever. But he tells me he doesn't sell them. He just gives them away. Yeah, but then he's just over that for sixty quid. <laughs> <laughs> what happened with the second LP was that Polydor basically decided on a change of direction and the guy who uh, ran Polydor, very famous, is in charge of a uh, big publishing company Paul now. Paul Adams? No, no, he was our A&R man, he was great. Him. The big guy, Lucian Grange. He was proper big honcho and I remember bumping into him in uh, Groucho's one night and we were talking about Monaco and he said, oh yes, he said, I'm really looking forward to the 12-inch. I said, uh, 12 inches was about five years ago, mate. <laughs> well, we thought, oh, this guy knows fuck all. And he did. He basically sent a memo around saying, I'm sick of all these guitar bands, get rid of them all, and we want boy and girl bands from now on. And that was it. And we got dropped along with Shed 7, Terravision, <laughs> loads of bands. Should have got Potsy to put a wig on. <laughs> he would have done that Address. as well, wouldn't he? He would have no, done hey, that. Calm down. <laughs> uh, so we ended up moving to a label called Papillon, who bought it off Polydor because it was nearly finished as well. We'd actually delivered the finished thing, the second album, and it went tits up with Papillon. And they were supposed to release a single and they didn't. And then the LP came out very, very low-key and hardly anyone's ever heard it. And then I got asked to go back to New Order and um, Potsy, I said to Potsy, I said, should I go? And he said, yes, some, some finished business, you've got to go. And I always wonder what would have happened if he'd said, no, don't go, Oki, stay with me. <laughs> but he didn't, you know, he encouraged me to go back, didn't he, love? And he said, it's unfinished, you've got to go and do it. Yeah, yeah it was great. <laughs> yeah. 60 quid, it's got to be good. <laughs> Mate, if he'd have said 60p, had I been worried, you know what I mean? Just, just to finish that off, the good news for... And I've been asked a lot about Monaco. Now, I don't know what that says, is that Potsy and I had a conversation last week, because I get asked about new music all the time, and even though I do 
quite a lot of new music. I had a number one in France with the Limianas. I um, sat there on Air France listening to it and I thought, oh, you know, that, I thought, that sounds like my bass, that. Uh, yeah, and it was number one in France. Way, and I've just done a track with Rusty Egan, which has been put up for Train Spotting Two. Uh, I uh, did a begging phone call to Irvine Welsh. Irvine, come on, you've got to put it on, mate. <laughs> which I very rarely do things like that, but I thought for Train Spotting Two, it had to be done. So yeah, you, you do things, but not a great deal. And I also do um, Man Ray, which has done a lot of material which is on the Hacienda website, the old one, it's not on the new one. And I'm pretty shit at doing it, so I had a chat with Potsy a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, should we do something again? That's Monaco. And he went, yeah, yeah, so we can have a chat about it. <laughs> so I might have a bloody band again, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Next question over here. Uh, hi, Yonke. Um, question. What is one of the best rumors you heard about Joy Division that wasn't true, but you wish it was? Best rumor about Joy Division that wasn't true, but you wish it was? That, that we were miserable. <laughs> yeah, everybody said we were really miserable. And you know, the weirdest thing in the world was that it used to make me so happy that I couldn't even figure out how anybody could say we were miserable. I just couldn't, didn't get it. Because we, I loved it and we were so passionate about what we were doing and we were such a fantastic group. Joy Division were a perfectly balanced group. Each member contributed something that made the band unique. Now New Order wasn't like that. Not for the wonky leg problem, it just wasn't like that. Because you didn't have Ian. You know what I mean? That was the, the problem with it. But Joy Division was a perfectly balanced group. Fantastic band. So strong. And the prolificness of your writing was amazing. You know, we were writing two songs a week. And we'd be practicing for four and a half hours. And you'd still do two songs a week. We only practiced four and a half hours because we couldn't afford it, because it was 50p an hour. And we didn't have the money to... <laughs> to pay it, you see. So when you got to New Order, everything started taking longer and longer and longer. And as soon as you got the machines, which they always say that all this crap is invented by studio owners so they can make a fortune, and sometimes it feels like it's true. Everything took so long to do, you know. But it's weird, I mean, you look at a song like Blue Monday took about six months to write. Perfect Kiss, nine months. Lonesome Tonight, two hours. You know, you look at Love Will Tear Us Apart, we wrote it in three hours. You know, over two days, hour and a half. Age of Consent written really quickly. The, it changed so much, but generally all the machine records took a long, long time. And as soon as technology started getting involved in it, it basically the fun and the immediacy, you know, started to go out of it. And mm. when computers came in, as it's all detailed in here, you know, as a timeline for if any of you... There's, there's alerts, you can switch to the sex and the drugs, don't worry. Couple more questions. 
stick your hand up if you've got a question. There you go. Uh, it's one between you, like between Clint and the Inspirals, Peter with uh, Joy Division. What's your favourite venue or somewhere you have good memories of playing? Favourite venues for Inspirals or Pete's? Many great bands that he's been in. Um, Barrowlands in Glasgow is one. That's uh, always an instant one. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say uh, headlining Glastonbury three times was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, good night, everybody. <laughs> and, and as much as I hate to say it, when I saw the... Uh, Shut it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Pete, fill him in. All <laughs> oh, right, sorry. It's a different Pete, mate. This one you don't want to <laughs> fuck with. Uh, no, we did. We did. And I was great when they, them lot came back and uh, did the big tent, wasn't it? That, that made me very happy, that, I must admit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny going to Glastonbury sober because uh, I've been with Keith Allen a few times and ho, 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 Because I was walking around with him once and he was going up to all the musicians and he was going, watch this, okay, he said, and he's going up to all these famous musicians and going, is that pint off? And it would be like, that, going, oh, fucking hell, that's terrible, don't drink that and all this. And I said, what are you doing, mate? He said, oh, I said, I've just had two fingers up my ass. I said, watch this, will Lou Reed? <laughs> is that pint off, Lou? I, I was like, you fucking lunatic. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you used to have these mad lost Ford... Sorry, kids, if there are any kids in there. Um, <laughs> I should have put that one in the book. I don't think I put that one in. Uh, yeah, yeah. so those lost weekends that you used to have at uh, Glastonbury. I remember being at Glastonbury when um, Eric he used to dance at 808 State. Yeah, yeah. And I was off me knackers as you can imagine and uh, I was boring the arse of everyone about the hacienda and he said to me okay okay he said okay 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 and I was like what, what? and he went it's time to let it go <laughs> <laughs> take it uh, I took it that means you boring bastard let me just leave the uh, the last question to the biggest Joy Division New Order fan of all time Alex Dasko yeah You were born to be insulted. <laughs> I'm not telling you, no. No, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. <laughs> that was a little exchange that even I didn't understand. But that's what I love about Manchester. Listen, um, the book's on sale in the... Is it 20 notes? It's a great read, and like I said, you can knock burglars out with it. It's fucking massive. <laughs> You can't even hold it. <laughs> Let's uh, have a big load of love for Peter up. <laughs> right, have a great night. Thank you again.
Okay, it's time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this uh, podcast and uh, thanks again to Peter Oak uh, and all the people who helped this thing come together. Don't forget to check out episode two of Storytime with Boom from back in January where me and uh, Hooky talked about loads of other stuff as well. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there is a Spotify playlist to accompany this episode with complete versions of some of the tracks that you've heard uh, little bits of throughout the podcast. Hope you've enjoyed listening again. Sorry about the uh, the relentless industrial language which uh, ran throughout this episode, but that's the sort of thing that happens when uh, mates get together, isn't it? <laughs> Leave some comments on my iTunes page if you get a moment. Thanks as always to my friends at Distorted Productions for working the magic again. And uh, check out my other podcast if you get time, Set to Go. Uh, it's also available as a free download on iTunes, and it's all about new music. It's just me introducing you to uh, new bands, new artists that you might not have heard yet. I always like to end each episode of my podcast with an unsigned or upcoming band or artist, and this podcast is no exception. So I'm going to leave you today with a band called Sauce, a Manchester-based four-piece band, hoping to give the UK music scene something to shout about very, very soon. They sent me a little bio. It says they are mixing classic rock and roll, funky grooves, big choruses, along with a few 60s psychedelic tendencies. Source of bringing something new to the party. That's what it says here. Uh, they started when founding member George Stead, the drummer, uh, and lead guitarist Sean McKay invited lead singer Henry Lewis to jam with them about a year and a half ago. And a few weeks later, Henry introduced friend of the band, Lewis Rushton, uh, to play bass. Source played the first gig at the Night and Day in Manchester last year, and since then they've been writing and developing the sound, and recently recorded their debut single with producer Jake Evans. I absolutely love Jake Evans and his work. Check him out, he's stunning. The band go on to say, our goals are to get Source's music into the hands of everyone in the country and capitalise on the growing guitar band scene that's coming out of Manchester at the moment by selling out music venues with the electric live shows. Their collective influences are bands like the Rolling Stones, Tame Impala, The Doors, The Arctic Monkeys, Funkadelic, The Stone Roses and it says here, obviously, The Beatles. You can get them on Facebook, Band Source, or on Twitter, at Source underscore band I love it that one of the constant images throughout these podcasts is the image of three, four, five lads in a rehearsal room somewhere in the country, somewhere in Manchester making new music and trying to get somewhere and this episode we've talked with Hucky about Joy Division and New Order and those days grafting away in rehearsal rooms waiting for something to happen, making things happen I just feel like it's really appropriate that we're ending it with a band like Source on this episode they're a great band and I'm excited to be introducing you to them for the first time. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this track. I'm going to leave you with Gas Pipes Blown by Sauce. I'll see you soon. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.